Section thirty five of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume three, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter twenty one, verses one to fourteen. Poverty of first disciples, difference in characters of disciples, abundant evidence of Christ's resurrection. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter twenty one, verses one to fourteen. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. They were together, Simon Peter, and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. They saith unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto peter it is the lord now when simon peter heard that it was the lord he girt his fisher's cloak unto him for he was naked and did cast himself into the sea and the other disciples came in a little ship for they were not far from land but as it were two hundred cubits dragging the net of fishes as soon as they were come to land they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid thereon and bread jesus saith unto them bring of the fish which ye now have caught simon peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes a hundred and fifty and three and for all there were so many yet was not the net broken jesus saith unto them come and dine and none of the disciples durst ask him who art thou knowing that it was the lord jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise this is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was risen from the dead. The appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection, described in these verses, is a deeply interesting portion of the gospel history. The circumstances attending it have always been regarded as highly allegorical and figuratively in every age of the church. It may, however, be justly doubted whether commentators and interpreters have not gone too far in this direction. It is quite possible to spiritualize and filter away the narratives of the Gospels until we completely lose sight of the plain meaning of words. In the present case we shall find it wise to confine ourselves to the great, simple lessons which the passage undoubtedly contains. We should observe, for one thing, in these verses, the poverty of the first disciples of Christ— we find them working with their own hands in order to supply their temporal wants and working at one of the humblest of callings the calling of a fisherman silver and gold they had none lands and revenue they had none and therefore they were not ashamed to return to the business to which they had most of them been trained striking is the fact that some of the seven here named were fishing when our lord first called them to be apostles and again fishing when he appeared to them almost the last time we need not doubt that to the minds of peter james and john the coincidence would have come home with peculiar power the poverty of the apostles goes far to prove the divine origin of christianity 
these very men who toiled all night in a boat dragging about a cold wet net and taking nothing these very men who found it necessary to work hard in order that they might eat these very men were some of the first founders of the mighty church of christ which has now overspread one-third of the globe these were they who went forth from an obscure corner of the earth and turned the world upside down these were the unlearned and ignorant men who boldly confronted the subtle systems of ancient philosophy and silenced its advocates by the preaching of the cross these were the men who at ephesus at athens and rome emptied the heathen temples of their worshippers and turned away multitudes to a new and better faith he that can explain these facts except by admitting that christianity came down from god must be a strangely incredulous man reason and common sense lead us to only one conclusion in the matter nothing can account for the rise and progress of christianity but the direct interposition of god we should observe for another thing in these verses the different characters of different disciples of christ once more on this deeply interesting occasion we see peter and john side by side in the same boat and once more as at the sepulchre we see these two good men behaving in different ways when jesus stood on the shore in the dim twilight of the morning john was the first to perceive who it was and to say it is the lord but peter was the first to spring into the water and to struggle to get close to his master in a word john was the first to see but peter was the first to act john's gentle loving spirit was quickest to discern but peter's fiery impulsive nature was quickest to stir and move and yet both were believers both were true-hearted disciples both loved the lord in life and were faithful to him unto death but their natural temperaments were not the same let us never forget the practical lesson before us as long as we live let us diligently use it in forming our estimate of believers let us not condemn others as graceless and unconverted because they do not see the path of duty from our standpoint or feel things exactly as we feel them there are diversities of gifts but the same spirit first corinthians chapter twelve verse four the gifts of god's children are not bestowed precisely in the same measure and degree some have more of one gift and some have more of another some have gifts which shine more in public and some which shine more in private some are more bright in a passive life and some are more bright in an active one yet each and all the members of god's family in their own way and in their own season bring glory to god martha was careful and troubled about much serving when mary sat at the feet of jesus and heard his word yet there came a day at bethany when mary was crushed and prostrated by overmuch sorrow and martha's faith shone more brightly than her sister's luke chapter ten verse thirty nine and forty john chapter eleven verses twenty to twenty eight nevertheless both were loved by our lord the one thing needful is to have the grace of the spirit and to love christ let us love all of whom this can be said though we may not see with our eyes in everything the church of christ needs servants of all kinds and instruments of every sort pen-knives as well as swords axes as well as hammers chisels as well as saws martha's as well as mary's peter's as well as john's let our ruling maxim be this grace be with all them that love our lord jesus christ in sincerity ephesians chapter six verse twenty four 
we should observe lastly in these verses the abundant evidence which scripture supplies of our lord jesus christ's resurrection here as in other places we find an unanswerable proof that our lord rose again with a real material body and a proof seen by seven grown-up men with their own eyes at one and the same time we see him sitting talking eating drinking on the shore of the lake of galilee and to all appearances for a considerable time the morning sun of spring shines down on the little party they are alone by the well-known galilean lake far away from the crowd and noise of jerusalem in the midst sits the master with the nail prints in his hands the very master whom they had all followed for three years and one of them at least had seen hanging on the cross they could not be deceived will any one pretend to say that stronger proof could be given that jesus rose from the dead can any one imagine better evidence of a fact that peter was convinced and satisfied we know he says himself to cornelius we did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead acts chapter ten verse forty one those who in modern times say they are not convinced may as well say that they are determined not to believe any evidence at all let us all thank god that we have such a cloud of witnesses to prove that our lord rose again the resurrection of christ is the grand proof of christ's divine mission he told the jews they need not believe he was the messiah if he did not rise again the third day the resurrection of christ is the top stone of the work of redemption it proved that he finished the work he came to do and as our substitute had overcome the grave the resurrection of christ is a miracle that no infidel can explain away men may carp and cavil at balaam's ass and jonah in the whale's belly if they please but till they can prove that christ did not rise again we need not be moved above all the resurrection of christ is the pledge of our own as the grave could not detain the head so it shall not detain the members well may we say with peter blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead first peter chapter one verse three notes john chapter twenty one verses one to fourteen the last chapter of st john's gospel requires a few preliminary observations certain very objectionable theories have been propounded about it a some as grotius maintain that the chapter was not written by john at all that his gospel ended with the last verse of the twentieth chapter and that the twenty-first chapter is the work of another writer perhaps one john an ephesian presbyter b others do not go so far as this and yet maintain that the chapter must be regarded as a postscript or appendix to the gospel and was probably added as an afterthought by st john himself some years after the rest of the gospel the chief ground on which these theories are built is the passage with which the twentieth chapter ends men tell us that the two concluding verses of that chapter were evidently intended to finish and wind up john's narrative and that the twenty-first chapter comes in awkwardly and abruptly from all these theories i entirely dissent and repudiate them altogether i see no proof whatever that the last two verses of the twentieth chapter were intended to be a winding up of the whole gospel to me they appear to be a characteristic comment of the evangelist such as he often makes on the account he has given in the chapter of our lord's appearances to the disciples after his resurrection and nothing more to me it appears perfectly natural that he should go on writing and give a further account of our lord's most instructive appearance at the sea of galilee 
and i see in the narrative no abruptness or awkward fitting whatever on the contrary i see a peculiar beauty in the selection of the matter which the twenty-first chapter contains it seems to me a most fitting conclusion to the whole narrative of the gospel to tell us our lord's last sayings about two such apostles as peter and john concerning peter it should be remembered that none of the apostles had professed so much and yet fallen so sadly as he had john takes care to tell us how graciously and emphatically jesus restores him to his commission and specially bids him feed his church and foretells his end concerning john it should be remembered that he had been peculiarly mentioned as the disciple whom jesus loved he meekly tells us that the only prediction about himself if it can be called one was that his future end was left in obscurity by his lord and thus he concludes his gospel if any one thinks that such a chapter comes in awkwardly and is not a fitting conclusion to john's narrative after the twentieth chapter i cannot agree with him of evidence whether external or internal that the theories i have referred to deserve consideration there is a conspicuous absence there is not the slightest proof that any trustworthy ancient writer ever regarded the last chapter of st john's gospel as less genuine and less inspired than the rest of the book there is nothing in the language or style of the chapter to create any suspicion that any other person than john composed it those who wish to see this subject fully investigated are advised to study wordsworth's appendix to st john's gospel in his commentary when i add to this statement the fact that in every age the wisest and holiest commentators have seen in this chapter several singularly deep and interesting types of the history and position of christ's church in the world i think i shall have said enough to satisfy many readers that they may approach the last chapter of st john's gospel with as much reverence and as much reasonable expectation of getting benefit from it as any other chapter in the book verse one after these things this expression is indefinite it only means that the appearance of our lord about to be described in this chapter took place after his appearance on the eighth day following his resurrection the time therefore in the verse before us is some day between the eighth and the fortieth day when he ascended into heaven but what precise day we cannot tell one thing at any rate we may be sure of it was not the sabbath day or else the disciples would not have gone fishing even on the day following the crucifixion christ's disciples rested according to the commandment luke chapter twenty three verse fifty six jesus showed himself again disciples a deep question naturally arises out of the expression before us where was our lord on the days when he did not manifest or show himself to his disciples it is evident that he was not with them always and that he only visited them at intervals where was he then in the meantime not in heaven we may be sure because he had not yet ascended but where was he on earth i speak of course of his human nature as god he is everywhere but where was he as a man this is a mysterious matter and one about which it is useless to speculate enough for us to know that our lord was visible or invisible and appeared suddenly in one place or another place and assumed one form or another form at his own will after a manner that we cannot understand but it is quite plain that when we read the words in acts being seen of them forty days acts chapter one verse three we must not suppose them to mean that our lord was seen every day it only means that during forty days he was seen at intervals each appearance we doubt not had its own special purpose and intention chrysostom remarks it is clear from the words showed himself 
that Christ was not seen, after his resurrection, unless he condescended, because his body was henceforth incorruptible and of unmixed purity. At the Sea of Tiberias Concerning this remarkable piece of water, sometimes called the Lake of Gennesaret, and sometimes the Sea of Galilee, I have already said something in my note on John chapter 6, verse 1. It is a fresh-water lake, through which the river Jordan runs, twelve and a half miles long and six and three-quarters broad, and remarkable in a geological point of view as being six hundred and fifty-five feet below the level of the Mediterranean Sea. In a theological point of view, it must always be most interesting to a Christian, because some of our Lord's mightiest miracles were wrought on it, or close to it. Here our Lord walked on the waters, and came to the disciples toiling in rowing. Here he stilled the wind and the waves with a word. Here he granted four of his apostles a miraculous draught of fishes. Here he provided payment of the tribute money out of the mouth of a fish which he commanded Peter to catch. On the banks of the lake he fed a multitude with a few loaves and fishes. On a high ground overhanging this lake he cast out the legion of devils and allowed them to drive two thousand swine into the sea. In the towns upon this lake, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, he did some of his mightiest works. Sitting in a boat on this lake, he delivered the parable of the sower. In short, of all of the districts in which our Lord preached and wrought miracles, there was none which saw and heard so much as the district round the Sea of Tiberias. Can we doubt, when we remember all this, that our Lord had a deep purpose and meaning in appearing to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias? Can we doubt that he meant to remind them of all they had seen in former days of wisdom, love, and power by the side of these well-known waters? He knew well the influence which scenery and places exercise over the mind of man. He would recall to the memory of his disciples all that they had witnessed in the early days of his ministry. Above all, he would stir the hearts of Peter and James and John by saying some of his last things to them at the very place where he had first called them to leave their boats and nets to follow him and to become fishers of men. Where he had begun with them, there he would have one of his last interviews with them before leaving the world. The exact spot where our Lord appeared at the Sea of Tiberias is, of course, unknown. But when we remember that Bethsaida, at the north end of the lake, was the city of Andrew and Peter, John chapter 1, verse 44, we may safely conjecture that the scene of this chapter was somewhere near Bethsaida. The boat in which Peter went fishing would most probably either be his own boat or the property of some relative or friend in his native city. And on this wise showed he himself. This is a somewhat curious sentence. It does not, I think, only mean the manner of his appearance was as follows. I suspect that it was inserted emphatically in order to direct our special attention to all the little details of the occurrence, and to remind us that even the minutest parts of it have a deep spiritual meaning. Verse 2. There were together Simon Peter, etc. This verse contains the names of seven of the witnesses before whom the remarkable appearance of Christ about to be described took place. Seven, we may remember, is the number of perfection, and the evidence of seven witnesses was regarded as the most complete evidence that could be given. Two of the seven, we shall observe, are not named, and we are left entirely to conjecture who these two were. Most commentators think they must have been Andrew and Philip, Andrew because he was Peter's brother, and Philip because he was an inhabitant of Bethsaida on the lake, but we really do not know, and it is useless to guess. 
why these seven alone out of the eleven were here we are not told but we need not doubt there was good reason all the company of the apostles we may believe went into galilee when the passover feast was over according to our lord's command and probably very soon after his appearance for the benefit of thomas but where matthew simon james the lass and jude were on the present occasion we do not know it is worth noting that this is the only place in st john's gospel where he mentions the name of his own father zebedee why these seven disciples in particular were together is worth inquiry the presence of simon peter as he lived in galilee and had a special message from our lord that he was going into galilee we can understand thomas once convinced that jesus had risen would very likely take care to stick close to peter and john nathaniel lived at cana in galilee and was probably bartholomew augustine however doubts this the two sons of zebedee were simon's partners and are always found together with him on great occasions the message of our lord about galilee we must remember was tell my brethren that they go into galilee and there they shall see me matthew chapter twenty eight verse ten these were our lord's own words the angel also said to the women he goeth before you into galilee there ye shall see him matthew chapter twenty eight verse seven we might reasonably expect to find the apostles in galilee after this on thomas being one of the party henry remarks thomas is named next to peter as if he now kept closer to meetings of the apostles than ever it is well if losses by our neglect make us more careful afterwards not to let opportunities slip verse three simon peter saith unto them some worthy commentators have presumed to find fault with peter for going a-fishing they say that he showed a disposition to return to the world and to follow his worldly calling once more from this view i entirely dissent i see no harm whatever in peter's conduct on this occasion he and his companions were poor men and must needs work in order to provide for their subsistence there was nothing wrong in the act of fishing and it was only natural to take up the business with which they were most familiar the great business of going out as our lord's messengers to preach the gospel was not to begin until his ascension and in the interval it was better to follow an honest calling than to be idle neither in peter's proposal nor in the simple frank consent of his companions can i detect a jot of proof that anything wrong was done idleness does christians far more injury than work among the jews every man whatever his rank or position might be was required to learn a worldly calling chrysostom remarks since neither christ was with them continually nor was the spirit yet given nor they at that time entrusted with anything having nothing to do they went after their trade augustine observes the apostles were not forbidden to seek their necessary subsistence by the exercise of their crafts a lawful and permitted one if at any time they had no other means of subsistence he also remarks that they were no more to blame than st paul was when he wrought with his own hands as a tent-maker acts chapter eighteen verse three calvin remarks peter had not yet been enjoined to appear in public for the discharge of his office of teaching but had only been reminded of his future calling john chapter twenty verses twenty one to twenty three that he and others might understand that they had not in vain been chosen from the beginning meanwhile they were to do what they were accustomed to do and what belonged to men in private life ferris remarks that a lawful business is not sinful if matthew had gone back to a publican's life it would have been a very different thing from peter going to fish 
steer remarks that this going to fish was only carrying out our lord's words but now he that hath a purse let him take it and likewise his scrip and he that hath no sword let him sell his garment and buy one luke chapter twenty two verse thirty six the expression a boat should have been translated the boat does not the use of the article show that this was that well-known boat which our lord and his disciples had always used when they went on the lake in the fact that they caught nothing that night there is nothing that would surprise a fisherman of all callings by which men earn their living none is more uncertain than that of a fisherman luke chapter five verse four night is the time when most fish are caught as all who are familiar with fishing know that there was probably a deeply typical meaning in all of this i shall hope to show when i reach the end of the passage i think it better to reserve all remarks upon that point until i can present them to the reader in one continuous form for the present, both here and throughout the passage, I shall simply comment on facts as facts. Burgon remarks, One thing is certain, and the circumstance is full of interest. It must have been their necessities which sent forth the apostles on this lowly errand of fishing. And yet these were they on whom the church was to be built. These seven were among the names written on the twelve foundations of the heavenly Jerusalem. Burgon also thinks that the words went forth point to the apostles sitting together indoors in the evening and very likely on a sabbath evening verse four but when the morning came this probably means when the day began to break so that an object at a little distance could be seen as soon as there was enough light through the gray dawn the party in the boat saw the figure of a person on the shore there is little or no twilight in countries so far south as palestine night goes and day follows much more suddenly than with us jesus stood on the shore this reads like a sudden and instantaneous appearance like that which took place when our lord appeared the first time in the midst of the disciples just in the same manner it seems to me in a moment in the twinkling of an eye jesus appeared standing on the shore of the lake the risen body of our lord we must remember appeared or disappeared was present or absent according to his will in a moment of time grotius remarks that our lord never went on the sea after his resurrection compare revelation chapter twenty one verse one there was no more sea but the disciples knew not was jesus the disciples did not recognize our lord in my opinion because he appeared in another form just as he appeared to the two who were journeying to emmaus I reject entirely the idea that the dim light of the early morning was the reason why they did not know him. It is evident to me that our Lord's risen body did not, on any occasion, after he rose again, for some mysterious reason, look exactly like the body he had before his crucifixion. It was the same, and yet not the same, if I may so speak. Will it not be so with our own bodies, when we rise again at the last day? We shall be the same, and yet not the same. It is noteworthy that the Greek words used here were exactly those that were used about Mary Magdalene when she thought the gardener spoke to her and knew not that it was Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 14. Verse 5. Then Jesus saith unto them, etc. We cannot suppose for a moment that our Lord did not know whether the disciples had any meat when he asked them the question of this verse. It is clear to me that he asked it in order to raise attention in the minds of the disciples and to put them at ease in conversing with them. He appeared as a stranger who was graciously pleased to say something familiar and friendly. 
does it not remind us of the way in which he began conversation with the woman of samaria and broke the ice as it were between him and her give me to drink he said john chapter four verse seven nothing sets people so much at ease when they meet as strangers as courteous inquiries about the simple matters of daily life the word meet is a striking example of the change which comes over the meaning of english words in the course of time it means literally anything edible two centuries ago the word meat was a translation which no englishman would misunderstand now unfortunately it is a word confined entirely to flesh no translation can ever be perfect all require occasional reverent revision the content seems to me to show that our lord's inquiry was specially meant to apply to the success of the disciples in fishing have ye caught anything that can be eaten the disciples evidently took it in this sense it is worth noticing that our lord must have spoken in a very loud voice when he addressed his disciples in this verse we are distinctly told that the boat was two hundred cubits at least one hundred yards from the land in the eighth verse and there is nothing to show that the disciples put out further into the lake when our lord told them to cast their net again i mention this because some such as gerhard henry and besser think that there was something curt rough and rather abrupt in the answer of the disciples but they seem to forget that a conversation carried on over a hundred yards of water could only be carried on in very brief and abrupt phrases the word children in this verse rendered sirs in the margin is to my mind rightly rendered in the text it is a familiar friendly mode of address like our english boys or lads not necessarily implying great youth in the persons addressed verse six and he said cast right side find our lord now goes a step further in order to discover himself to his disciples he gives a command or counsel to cast their net which they had apparently hauled into the boat once more into the water and upon the right side of the ship such advice and such a promise of success from a stranger could hardly fail to strike the disciples would it not raise in the quick mind of john a suspicion that this was no common stranger who spoke would not he and peter both remember a former occasion when they toiled all the night and took in nothing and yet at the command of their master had let down their nets again with marvellous success i think they would it seems to me highly probable that the disciples had finished their night's work had hauled up their net into the boat and were rowing home tired of their profitless toil when our lord appeared and spoke to them they cast therefore and now fishes in the fact that the disciples found a multitude of fishes in their net the moment they acted on our lord's advice there is in one point of view nothing extraordinary many fish swim in shoals and it is quite a matter of common experience among fishermen that one boat may take nothing while a few yards off another boat has an immense haul the miracle consisted in the perfect knowledge that our lord possessed as to where the fish were and on which side of the boat to cast the net this alone proved that he was omniscient whether it is likely that seven tired fishermen after working all night and hauling up their net and stowing it away would stop on their way home at the advice of a stranger and cast in their net once more in broad daylight is a point which admits of question my own impression is that a secret power and influence went with our lord's words and without knowing why the seven disciples felt irresistibly constrained to do what the mysterious stranger advised verse seven therefore that disciple the lord the first to recognize jesus was the disciple who first believed the resurrection 
the beloved disciple john who as usual does not give his own name with characteristic quickness and sensitiveness he at once felt convinced that the mysterious stranger must be his beloved master love is always keen-sighted it suddenly flashed across his mind that the advice given by the stranger and the result of following the advice had been precisely the same three years before the stranger must surely know what happened then and must have been present the stranger must be the lord himself thoughts such as these most probably passed through his mind far quicker than we can describe them and at once he said to his friend peter who was most likely the leading man in the boat it is the lord rollick thinks it was the wonderful draught of fishes that made john know it was the lord he saw in it not only miraculous power but wonderful bountifulness and liberality just like his divine master now when simon peter heard etc the conduct of the apostle peter here described is eminently characteristic of the man it is just what might have been expected from the disciple who went out of the ship to walk on the water on a former occasion and drew his sword and began to smite when our lord was surrounded by his enemies fervent warm-hearted impulsive impetuous affectionate thinking nothing of consequences acting on the spur of present feeling he at once plunges into the sea when he hears that his lord is on the shore and struggles to get close to him whatever we may think of his hasty behavior we must all admire his love zeal for christ deserves respect even when it leads a man into hasty action enthusiasm even when it runs to seed is better than indifference we should note how peter rushed into action the very moment that he heard the words it is the lord he did not wait to see like thomas on another occasion but was satisfied with a word from his brother john a single spark is enough to kindle tinder and a single word is enough to stir a heart when its affections are deeply concerned the greek word which is rendered fisher's coat is only found here in the new testament theophylact says it was the upper garment of syrian fishermen the context seems to show that it was a sort of garment which a fisherman laid aside when in the very act of handling his nets when we read that peter was naked i see no reason why we should suppose that he was entirely without clothes i think the meaning is that he was comparatively naked having laid aside all his looser garments as a fisherman in the hot climate naturally would in order to be able to handle wet nets and fish with greater convenience and when we read that he girt around him his fisher's coat I think it simply means that he took up the loose outward garment that he wore when he went on the lake to fish and girded it tightly round his waist before jumping into the sea when we read that peter cast himself into the sea i see no reason for supposing that he swam to land in order to swim it is not likely that he would put on more clothes i rather think that the water where he and his companions were was shallow and that he waited to land he knew that his large fishing boat drew too much water to get near shore and he was too impatient to wait for the slow process of launching the little boat and coming ashore in it i cannot doubt as he jumped into the water that he remembered going out on the same ship on a former occasion and walking on the water to go to jesus it is only fair to say that chrysostom thinks that peter swam on the other hand brentius gerhard and archbishop waitley think that he walked on the water in a miraculous manner as on the former occasion verse eight and the other disciples came etc here we see placed in strong contrast with peter's action the way in which the six remaining apostles came to land they came in the boat a little ship is a defective translation 
which means the skiff or punt which most large fishing vessels have with them the water was evidently too shallow for the large fishing vessel to get near shore and they came slowly we may be sure because for two hundred cubits or one hundred yards they had to drag behind their little boat a net full of fish how heavy a drag such a net makes on a little boat's progress through the water those only know who have had experience it is noteworthy that we are not told that peter got to shore at all sooner than his brethren this point is singularly enough passed over in silence but wading through deep water is slow work and the fact that peter put his coat on before plunging into the sea is to my own mind strong indirect proof that he did not swim but wade it is noteworthy that peter forgot fish and net and boat and everything else in his anxiety to reach christ it was like the samaritan woman who left her water-pot john chapter four verse twenty eight verse nine as soon then fire coals fish bread i cannot doubt that this verse records a miracle our blessed lord made preparation for the bodily wants of his wearied disciples and mercifully furnished a table for them in the wilderness psalm seventy eight verse nineteen the burning fire the fish laying on it the bread were all the creation of him who had but to will a thing and it was done ever thoughtful ever compassionate our lord thought good at this appearing to show his poor toiling disciples that he cared for their bodies as well as their souls and remembered that they were men who can tell but this miracle took place near the very spot where he had formerly fed five thousand men with a little bread and fish i cannot doubt that the bread and fish thus miraculously created would remind the apostles of loaves and fishes multiplied once more they saw the same miraculous food bread and fish provided by the same almighty power of their lord the greek word rendered fire of coals is only found in two places in the new testament here and in the account of the scene in the high priest's hall at our blessed lord's examination before annas john chapter eighteen verse eighteen it was a fire of coals at which the servants of the high priest warmed themselves and before which the apostle peter denied his lord some think that our lord had a special object in view by having a fire of coals in this place and that it was to remind peter of his fall but perhaps the idea is far-fetched steer argues strongly but needlessly in my judgment that this provision of bread and fish was made by the angels in any case it was a miracle and an act of creation quesnel observes here are miracles upon miracles the same power which filled the net with fishes in the midst of the sea created others upon land to show his disciples that it was not from want of power to give them fish that christ asked for some and ordered them to fish for them verse ten jesus saith unto them bring etc in this verse our lord calls on the disciples to bring proof that in casting the net at his command they had not labored in vain it was the second saying that he spoke we must remember on this occasion the first was cast the net on the right side and ye shall find the second saying was bring up the fish which ye now have caught with a strong emphasis on the word now i believe our lord's object was to show the disciples that the secret of success was to work at his command and to act with implicit obedience to his word it is as though he said draw up the net and see for yourselves how profitable it is to do what i tell you fish for food they did not want now for that was provided for them proof of the power of christ's blessing and the importance of working under him was the lesson to be taught 
and as they drew up the net they would learn it verse eleven simon peter went up etc i see no reason for supposing in this verse that peter alone drew up the net i think it reasonable to suppose that he is named as the leader of the party and captain of the boat but i believe that all the others helped him the going up must mean peter went on board the little boat once more we see two miracles recorded in this verse one miracle was the singularly large catch of fish which the net contained a quantity evidently exceeding what was generally taken at one haul the other miracle was the singular fact that in spite of this large quantity of fish the net was not broken miracle on miracle passed under the eyes of the astonished disciples can we doubt that their minds recalled the miraculous draught of fishes on a former occasion when their net brake and our lord's word fear not from henceforth thou shalt catch men and also his original saying follow me and i will make you fishers of men and can we doubt that some of them remembered the parable of the kingdom of heaven being like to a net cast into the sea and finally drawn to shore luke chapter five verse ten matthew chapter four verse nineteen and chapter thirteen verse forty seven concerning the number one hundred and fifty three we know nothing and it is useless to speculate some have thought that it refers to the languages and some to the tribes or nations of the world each it is alleged about one hundred and fifty in number but this is only guesswork yet it is worth remembering that the strangers whom solomon employed in building the first temple were precisely one hundred and fifty three thousand and six hundred let the remark be taken for what it is worth second chronicles chapter two verse seventeen pierce calls attention to a remark of jerome that opian a greek poet of cilicia in the second century who wrote on fishing has given an account of the number of fishes known to him in his time being exactly one hundred and fifty three this at any rate is curious scott makes the remark that this draught of fishes might be sold for a considerable sum of money which the apostles would have need of on their return to jerusalem before the day of pentecost there may be something in the idea verse twelve jesus saith come and dine the object of this gracious invitation seems to me to have been twofold it was meant partly to show our lord's tender compassion for the weary bodies of his disciples though risen he knew and felt for their wants and would supply food for them when hungry and fatigued it was meant partly to show that though risen from the dead with a glorified body he would be on the same loving terms of familiarity and kindness as before with his disciples they need not be frightened at him he had not forgotten them he did not mean to keep them at a distance he was still one who would eat and drink with them as a man eateth and drinketh with his friends it is written i will come in to him and sup with him and he with me revelation chapter three verse twenty an old divine says christ loveth to deal familiarly with men the greek word rendered dine does not necessarily mean a midday meal parkhurst shows on the contrary from xenophon that it may mean a morning repast as things are in england now the translation is a peculiarly unfortunate one two or three centuries ago when people dined at eleven o'clock the unfitness of it would not have been so remarkable the meaning evidently is come and partake of a morning meal and none durst ask the lord these words describe the state of mind in which the disciples were at this moment they all felt convinced and satisfied that the person before them was the lord they felt no doubt and no one was the least disposed to say who art thou 
nevertheless they all felt awed and solemnized by his presence a deep sense of the mysterious nature of their lord in consequence of his resurrection filled their minds with an indefinable sensation of mingled embarrassment reverence and fear surely we can all understand this even when joseph spoke lovingly to his brethren and revealed himself to them they were troubled at his presence genesis chapter forty five verse three to sit and eat and drink in the company of one who had risen from the dead and appeared and disappeared after a supernatural manner was no light thing who can wonder that they felt awed chrysostom says seeing that his form was altered and full of awfulness they were amazed and desired to ask something concerning it but fear and their knowledge that he was not some other but the same checked the inquiry and they only ate what he with greater exertion of power than before created for them for here jesus no more looked up to heaven nor performed those human acts showing that those also which he did formerly were done by way of condescension verse thirteen jesus then cometh and taketh bread etc this verse describes what took place at this meal or as our bible calls it this dinner our lord came forward as the host and entertainer of seven astonished disciples and gave them bread and fish as he had doubtless often done on former occasions and perhaps at the same time he doubtless meant to give the disciples one more plain proof that he had risen from the dead alone by the sea of galilee in the open air far from the fear of interruption in broad daylight he eats and drinks at a social meal could these seven men ever doubt from that day if they had doubted before that jesus rose from the dead he meant furthermore to encourage them to continue looking to him as they had done before as a loving familiar sympathizing friend though risen he would have them see practical proof that he could be touched with the feeling of their infirmities and cared for their bodies as well as their souls he meant not least to remind them of his great miracle of feeding the multitudes with a few loaves and fishes he would freshen their memory of that wondrous miracle and show them that he would continue doing for them what he had formerly done for those who followed him in the wilderness chrysostom here remarks that we are not directly told that jesus ate with the disciples but that it is probable from luke's words in acts chapter one verse four that he did how he remarks it is not ours to say these things come to pass in too strange a manner his nature did not even need food it was an act of condescension in proof of the resurrection see genesis chapter eighteen verse eight verse fourteen this is now the third time etc in this verse st john winds up the wonderful story he has just told by one of his peculiar parenthetical comments concerning the meaning of the expression third time there has been in my judgment much needless dispute no doubt it is perfectly true that this was not literally the third time that our lord was seen by any one after his resurrection on the contrary we know of at least six different appearances before this one viz one to mary magdalene two to joanna and other women three to simon peter four to two disciples going to emmaus five to ten apostles together six to the eleven for the special benefit of thomas but it is no less true that this is strictly and literally the third time that jesus appeared to any number of the disciples gathered together and it is also the third day as augustine remarks that our lord was pleased to appear at all the first five appearances were all on the very same day when he rose from the dead the sixth was a week afterwards when he appeared to rebuke the unbelief of thomas 
and the appearance recorded in this chapter though the seventh in number took place on the third day only that any one on earth saw him after he rose the question now remains to be considered has the narrative contained in these fourteen verses any deep spiritual and allegorical meaning were we intended to read the passage simply as a description of one of our lord's appearances after his resurrection and an account of one of his miracles or is the narrative a typical one is the passage intended to convey under figures and symbols great prophetical truths concerning the work of the ministry and the history of the church in every age until the lord comes the question is a serious one and demands serious consideration a on the one hand there is undeniable danger in the habit of seeking spiritual and allegorical meanings in the plain historical facts of god's word we may go so far in this direction that like origen and too often augustine we may lose sight of the primary simple meaning of scripture and turn the bible into a mere book of riddles which is useless to any common man and useful only to those who have very fertile and fanciful imaginations in fact if we are always extracting figurative meanings out of scripture we may destroy the usefulness of the book altogether there must be some limit to the system of figurative interpretation as a rule i shrink intuitively from putting any sense on god's word which is not the obvious and plain sense of its language hooker's words are weighty and wise when a literal construction of a text will stand that which is furthest from the letter is commonly the worst b on the other hand it is impossible to deny that all christ's miracles were meant more or less to teach great spiritual truths under allegories and figures and the passage before us is a miracle in addition to this we must remember that the occasion of the miracle before us was a peculiarly solemn one that the apostles needed certain great truths to be impressed on their attention with peculiar force by facts as well as by words and that on the eve of his ascension into heaven our lord would be exceedingly likely to remind them of their duty and their position as ministers by things under their eyes as well as by instruction in their ears finally let us try to put ourselves in the position of the seven apostles on the occasion before us and try to imagine what they thought and felt about the incidents of this remarkable morning it is very hard to imagine that they saw nothing but a simple miracle in all that happened i cannot think so i think their hearts must have burned within them and old spiritual truths which they had heard before must have revived in their minds with fresh power and been written on their souls as with the point of a diamond never to be effaced on the whole then i cannot avoid the conclusion that the familiar verses before us probably contain under symbolical facts great spiritual truths i think we are fairly justified in regarding the passage as a great parable or vision or allegory intended to convey to the church of christ lessons for all time and i am strengthened in this conclusion by the remarkable fact that almost all commentators of every school and in every age have taken this view of the passage even grotius cold and rationalistic as his tone of exposition too frequently is puts a figurative sense on several circumstances of the passage other expositors of a more figurative and imaginative turn of mind go into heights and depths where i cannot pretend to follow them i shall content myself with pointing out the more obvious spiritual lessons which i think the passage was probably meant to convey a i think that christ's remarkable appearance to the disciples when they were in the act of fishing was meant to remind them and the whole church of the primary duty of ministers 
they were doing work which was strikingly emblematic of their calling they were to be fishers of men b i think the want of success in catching fish which the disciples had until the lord appeared was meant to teach that without christ's presence and blessing ministers can do nothing c i think the marvellous success which attended the cast of the net when christ gave the command was meant to teach that when christ is pleased to give success to ministers nothing can prevent souls being brought into the gospel net converted and saved d i think the drawing of the net to shore at last was meant to remind the disciples and all ministers of what will happen when the lord comes again the work of the church will be completed and the reckoning of results will take place e i think the dinner prepared and provided for the disciples when the net was drawn to shore was meant to remind ministers that there will be a great marriage supper of the lamb at last when christ himself shall welcome his faithful servants and ministers and come forth and serve them luke chapter twelve verse thirty seven f i think besides this that the respective positions of the disciples and christ when they first saw him may possibly be intended to represent the respective positions of christ and his people during this dispensation they were on the water of the sea he was looking at them from the land just so christ is in heaven looking at us and we are voyaging over the troublous waters of this world g finally i think that our lord's sudden appearing on shore when the morning broke may possibly represent our lord's second advent the night is far spent and the day is at hand when the morning dawns christ will appear with these conjectures i leave the passage they may not commend themselves to some readers i only say that they appear to me to deserve consideration and reflection end of section thirty five